lettering when you get into your Bible, when you see the words of Jesus. Well, let me just say that that's just to sort of signify that Jesus is talking, but these words don't hold any more authority, even by Jesus, than the rest of the Bible does. You guys remember 2 Timothy 3.16, it tells us all scripture is breathed out by God. So that includes everybody that's ever written anything in this book that we hold to be without error, and we happen to hold to that. This is God's infallible, inerrant word of himself. And so when we come to the words of Jesus... We remember Proverbs says this, For the Lord gives wisdom from his mouth come knowledge and understanding. Jesus is the wisdom of God. So what we're hearing this morning is the wisdom of God in our life for our life. Uh, You guys would have had to have been living in a hole last year to have missed the song Happy by our own Pharrell Williams. Yeah. It's still playing today if you want to just drive over to Hawkins right now at any point. So here's some, here's some of the really deep, profound lyrics from Happy. Clap along if you feel like a room without a roof. Clap along if you feel like happiness is the truth. I guess that rhymes. Clap along if you know what happiness is to you. Clap along if you feel like what's, that's what you want to do because, Pharrell, because I'm happy. That's Pharrell Williams. Do you wish, here's my question as we start, do you wish someone besides Pharrell could tell you the real truth about happiness? Or maybe more importantly, where our happiness brings us? Where does it lead us to? Where does it take us? Where do we end up when we've sort of jumped on this path of happiness? You know, for example, if you're happy after you buy a brand new car, I was just talking to Seth Buckwalter about cars. If you're happy after you buy a new car, does that actually lead to a future blessing? Or does it just lead to future maintenance? And repairs and eventual bankruptcy, depending on what kind of car you get. It only leads to a future blessing if it runs forever. And it's the last car you ever need to buy. Christianity is a godly life that leads to life with God forever. So we're always going back to what our end game is here in terms of what God is asking us to root our happiness in. And that's the message of the gospel, and it's a peculiar message, and it's this. Life comes from death. I mean, that's just flat-out cheery, launching into the fall. Life comes after death. That's the message. That's how Jesus frames much of what he says. That's how he frames his sermons today. And if that just sounds too dark for some of us, it means that we're coming from a place that doesn't see our sin darkly enough. All right? And the modern church... They just struggle with that. They struggle with that to its detriment. You know, we don't tend to, like, take some of these principles we're going to learn today and apply them to how we name things at church, you know? We don't say, come to our suffering conference, right? Or check your kids into the poor in spirit pre-K class. Like, we don't use those kind of descriptions to describe what Jesus is actually describing what the Christian life is. So for me, growing up, you know, I, I, it, I, you know you'd, get a, you'd hear a sermon series through the Beatitudes, which is what these are called, the blessings. And this is what it was. I'd read them thinking how great it was that the poor in spirit and the meek and those who mourn would inherit the kingdom of heaven just right alongside people like me. Right? Not realizing that Jesus was talking about me in this. And so what Jesus is doing is he's, 
giving us a redefinition today. He's giving us something that kind of startles our perceptions of happiness and blessings. And he kind of challenges us. And we're going to see that, hopefully feel that. And he challenges our definitions by showing us what life in the kingdom of God is for those who are in it. So last week, we saw Jesus kind of coming through this lowly lineage that he had. The scandal of his family line, of his family tree, getting all the way into his birth. I mean, this is like a guy, if you were going to do a movie about him, he was like the guy that could never catch a break. So he gets all the way to his earthly ministry, starts proclaiming the gospel, starts calling disciples, starts healing the sick, preaching the good news to those who are living in a world that hasn't been fully transformed. Everywhere Jesus goes, what goes with him is transformation, is restoration, is reconciliation. That's what happens when Jesus comes on to the scene. It's what happens when Jesus comes onto the scene of our own hearts. And this is part of this tension that we live in, which is called the already and the not yet. And this sermon is a little bit before that, but even for us right now, we're living in this time where Jesus has died. We have hope if we put our faith and our trust in him. But it's not yet what it's going to be. So we're in the tension of waiting for this final glorification with Christ of which there are going to be struggles, there's going to be hardships, there's going to be suffering. And I don't have to tell any of you what that's like right now. Because all of you have experienced some level of that, however great or small. So what we're going to learn this morning is that if we believe Jesus... We need to believe that the words he preaches will be the most true, the most hopeful, and the most hopeful words for us. Whatever he is offering us will be what we most need. And just a little qualification before we dive into the text. Jesus isn't saying this morning, and this is important that you guys hear this. Jesus isn't saying this is how you live to be saved. All right? You have to understand that. This is not how you live to be saved. This is how saved people live. That's the difference. That's what Jesus is trying to point out. He's saying, following me means believing that I am the only way to experience joy, happiness, hope, and contentment. He's saying there's something that comes out of something when I am that something in you. Man, that was a tongue twister. It's like meeting a guy like Zach Watson, who works with diabetes patients. He will tell you if you lay off the sugary snacks like the ones that Susan Grassi just brought me this morning, you'll actually start feeling better. But our desires are held captive by moon pies or whatever, right? We believe that short-term sugar highs are better than long-term effects that come with healthy eating. And Zach Watson actually keeps his job because we're wrong. Hey, that's it right there. So keep those things in mind as we dive into the text. Matthew 5. If you're on a device, we read through the ESV version. We're going to start at verse 2. And he opened his mouth. He went up the mountain. He sat down. His disciples came to him. He opened his mouth and he taught them saying, and what we're going to do this morning is just step very carefully and maybe not so carefully through each one of these beatitudes and then we're going to come to some conclusion about what this means for us today. What are the implications of something like this for us today? Verse 3, Jesus launches into it. Blessed are the poor in spirit 
for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Basically, what he's saying is happy are those, and when we say happy, we're not talking about this very thin, delusionalized version of what we normally think of happiness. But happiness is a state of being on an identity in Christ, a state of being based on an identity in Christ. So what Jesus is saying here is happy are those who realize their spiritual need before God, right? Like the tax collector from the parable in Luke, who would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast saying, God be merciful to me, a sinner. And now we struggle with this. We struggle with this because we live in a high esteem society. We live in a very high self-esteem society. We think our problem is that we think too little of ourselves. And then Jesus comes in and says, here's the thing. You have just the opposite problem. It's not that we have issues with low self-esteem. You guys feel free to argue with me about that. But it's not that we have issues with low self-esteem. Jesus said it's that we esteem ourselves at all. That's the issue. If you think self-esteem is a modern dilemma for us, Jesus kind of reverses popular thinking from 2,000 years ago by saying, blessed people, happy people, are one whose pride has been crushed by the cross of Christ. That's what he's saying here by saying, blessed are the poor in spirit. Man, this is not Debbie Downerisms, Right? This is not self-deprecation. This is not self-pity. All of those things, hear what I'm saying here, all of those things are subtle ways that people continue to actually highly esteem themselves. This is different. This is seeing ourselves as sinners saved by grace with eyes on the one who saved us and hearts of gratefulness for the grace that made it possible. It's good news. It's not poor me. That's not what he's saying right here. It's understanding how spiritually poor I am before God and seeing Jesus as the only thing that can make me spiritually rich. And there's just a stunning potentiality of beauty and grace for those who see their need. When you come before the throne of God and you say, Help me, I'm a sinner. I can't keep working this out for myself. I can't keep trying to earn this. I see the futility in it. God, you've opened up my eyes to see myself accurately, finally. It's like a coach who can't help an athlete until the athlete believes his skills are deficient. It's like a tutor can't help a student until they believe they lack sufficient knowledge of the subject they're struggling with. It's only when we see ourselves as spiritually destitute that Jesus can become our delight. From destitute to delight. And what we see in here and how we see the gospel in this is that Jesus became poor for us so that we could see our poverty and become rich like he is. Spiritually rich. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Verse 4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Again, remember who Jesus is talking to. Remember the class of people that Jesus is talking to. Remember how many of them would have just gotten healed from their diseases. 
Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Happy are those who are sorrowful. And they grieve after their sin. Not just their own sin, but they grieve about the state of the world. We have a lot of that we can focus on these days, can't we? We grieve over injustice. We see persecution. We see suffering. We see the darkness of the world. He's saying, blessed are you that see that because in the future, God will comfort you in that day, like it says in Revelation 21, when all mourning and crying will cease. So what Jesus is saying here is that the mark of a follower of me, of Jesus, is of one whose heart beats with the heart of Jesus. And is someone who hates injustice, who grieves over violence, is sickened by cruelty, and cries out to God when a three-year-old Syrian refugee washes up dead on the beach. We mourn over those things. We have to mourn over those things. It's a brokenness that Jesus said will someday be broken. And comfort can be our constant reality as we look towards that. And we can be blessed in that morning, knowing that someday we will be comforted. Here's the problem. Here's the American issue. Here's the American evangelical issue that we face. Because, man, we're taught to be rugged, right? We're taught to have, we're, we're taught to have that rugged John Wayne, just stoic individuality, right? All right, if you're under 50, that Jason Bourne, just rugged, stoic individuality, Right? And so when you get that, which is kind of a natural bent because we're Americans and we're bootstrap pullers, and you combine that with sort of this big, happy, smiley, false positivity that you see at a lot of churches, man, what that does is it teaches us that somehow, some way, we weren't designed to mourn. And yet Jesus says very clearly here that blessed are they that mourn. Because they will be comforted. Here's what's interesting. It doesn't say anywhere in the Bible to be positive. The Bible doesn't talk about positivity. The Bible says to be hopeful. Which is a depth of assurance based on evidence that God is caring and in control over everything that we can't see. Positivity? Putting on that smiley face... Always saying things are awesome, it's not vulnerability. What it does is it puts on a face that keeps people from knowing what you're facing. What's interesting is that you can't be positive about anything, but you can be hopeful about everything. Mourning is a sign that God is moving me from being me-centered. Isaiah says, Jesus was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. It means he knew something about how to mourn. And Jesus did mourn. He mourned over our sin. He came to earth from the comfort of heaven to be broken in our place so that someday, someday, our mourning could come to an end. Amen? That's good news. Verse 5. Blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. Again, remember this is Jesus talking about what the character and what the position of people who know him are like. These are not Chinese proverbs. 
That's not where he's going with this. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Happy are those who've been humbled in this life, for your inheritance will be a new heaven and a new earth and a new life. The, first, the future will be a reversal of the present, is what he's saying. You know what's interesting is that right now, in our lives, it seems like the people that get ahead are the go-getters, aren't they? You know, the type A personalities, the aggressive, the, the go-for-broke, the take-no-prisoner types that achieve power and success at no cost. That's the American model for us. Bull in a china shop. Just get in there. Go after it, man. You have to want it bad enough. You have to do whatever it takes to get where you want to go. Jesus comes in. He advocates something totally different, which are that those who see their spiritual bankruptcy in this life can look forward to spiritual renewal and riches in the next. Because this life is short. We remember Moses at one point in the Old Testament being called the meekest man on earth. And of course, Moses is the one who led Israel to inherit the promised land. A land, by the way, that as the meekest man of the earth, on the earth at the time, he didn't get to enter. But, which we, who humble ourselves before God, will someday enter. So what, we, what, Moses, what Moses points to when we look at his story is he points to a greater humility in Jesus who humbled himself on the cross so that self-assured, arrogant go-getters could humble themselves and achieve what they were trying to achieve on earth but never finding. That's what Jesus is advocating here. True meekness is only possible when the spirit of the meekest man who ever walked the earth is living inside us and revealing our true state. It's beautiful. It's beautiful when you think about how he is repositioning us in this. Verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. So he's saying happy are those who earnestly pursue righteousness and holiness in the same way like we pursue food and and drink because that is where our true contentment and our satisfaction is found. Because here's the thing. We go after things, don't we? And some of you guys just go after things. We go after things in our culture. I mean, we get mad props. We get major respect for achievements and accomplishments. We're hungry. We're hungry people. We have appetites. Our appetites are like bears after hibernating all winter looking for a handful of honey. Like, that's us. That's the kind of appetites that we have. But Jesus is talking about something deeper and more profound. He's talking about a spiritual hunger and thirst that actually is at the core of who we are. There's a reason why we go from one obsession to another many times. It's not because we're not looking for something deeper and meaningful. It's actually because we are. But we can't get it from what we're investing in. It kind of reminds me of, uh, of binge-watching on Hulu or Netflix, right? You keep hearing how great a show like The Blacklist is from all your friends, and then you finally watch it. 24 hours later, you finish the second season. And you're not really satisfied, but you are grumpy and sleepy and frustrated and feel like you've just maybe wasted your life. You were craving something that was being satisfied in the moment, but it was something that the blacklist 
And our boy James Spader can't deliver, which is the satisfaction and comfort of knowing that in the end, good wins out and that we will all be eternally satisfied. And Jesus is going to talk about this when we get to chapter 6 in November. He's going to remind us that all the things we labor for, that give us anxiety, that we worry about, are things he already provides for us. He promised to provide for us. And this is where the gospel comes in. Because on the cross, Jesus went hungry so that we could be filled by his broken body. We're going to celebrate that next week when we do communion. He went thirsty so that we could have our thirst filled by the Holy Spirit and we could find that refreshment. So being hungry and thirsty and going after righteousness truly is how we are filled because it's Christ who fills that void. Verse 7, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. He's saying happy are those who show others the compassion they've been shown in Christ because his mercy will be granted to you. And what's interesting is that mercy is the first thing shown to us when we receive Jesus Christ. Because we deserve punishment for sinning just like Adam sinned. But God holds back. He restrains his hand from punishing us. Instead, he shows us mercy. So a Christian can show mercy because he knows mercy. It's something we've experienced from Christ. Because whenever we find ourselves using the phrase, they deserved it, we're just showing that we don't know mercy very well. Mercy is not getting what we deserve. And if we understand the mercy we've been given in Christ, it leads us to be very slow to condemn and very fast to show mercy. Now, does that mean we tolerate sin? Just, do we just let it all slide? Man, it's cool. I'm just going to show you all mercy. Well, no, we don't tolerate sin. But what we do is aim to be compassionate. And we aim to be merciful. Again, because Jesus, who we want to go back to with all of these things, Jesus, the only just man who ever lived, was shown absolutely no mercy. So that people like us who didn't deserve any could receive it. Isn't that amazing? Isn't there just such a heartbreaking beauty in that? Jesus, the only just man who ever lived, was shown absolutely no mercy so that people like us who didn't deserve any could receive it. Verse 8, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. He's saying happy are those who have their heart and passion centered on the pursuit of God, of one thing, of God, because they will receive the desire of their heart. Do you know that if you seek God, you will find him? Because he will find you and he will make himself known to you. The aim here is that all of us would increasingly have equal parts less and more desire as we mature in Christ. Less desire for the things of the world, more desire for the things of God. What we want is for our palate to change. David said, create in me a clean heart and renew a right spirit in me. So what God does is he comes in and he redeems our desires. He repositions them. He refocuses them. He replaces them. And then as my relationship with God grows, my heart for him increases. And we all know this because we do this with everything else in our lives. When we experience something better, we typically don't go back to something else less great. Typically, if it's possible. So, you know, yesterday I was screwing in curtain brackets by hand. 
Yeah, it was outrageous. And it was hard not to wonder why I didn't have that cordless drill that I used to have anymore. And then we remember Mary and Martha. Remember the story of Mary and Martha. Martha, Jesus comes over to visit Mary and Martha. Martha was troubled. She's hurrying around. She's preparing the food. She's scurrying around the house, trying to get everything ready. But Mary sat at Jesus' feet. She only wanted to hear from him. It's not bad to prepare food. It's not bad to want to make things nice for your guests. That's not, wasn't, that wasn't the point. But food can't be what fills and consumes us. So the big picture here is, do you want to see God? Do you want to see God? Seek God. Seek the thing that is going to fill you. Man, we just, man, we just get so, we just tilt over into things to numb us, to give us some measure of some satisfaction. Just let me feel something secure. And just pick your poison with that. Jesus says, if you seek me, you'll find me. Verse 9, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Happy are those who strive for peace with one another, coming together for reconciliation of interpersonal relationships, because they'll be named among those who God calls his children, and those who call, God calls his own will be those who work to give the peace that they've been given by God to others. And this is not an insignificant blessing because the church has not been an institution known for its peacemaking abilities over the years. But being a peacemaker means that we're not gossips. It means that we purpose to only speak good of others and that we repent to one another when that peace has been broken. And there's a lot of pain in keeping peace which is why we're told to be peacemakers, not peacekeepers. To be someone who lays aside their pride and says, sorry. The world tells us to swallow our pride. The Bible says spit it out. Get rid of it. Remove it. Peacemaking is not passivity either. Peace at all costs is not really peace at all. It's not looking the other way at wrongdoing, but it's looking to Jesus for strength to undo the wrongs we commit against others. Because the very heart of God is peace. And it's best formed and shaped and sent in the person of Jesus who became our peace, who healed the severed relationship between God and man that will one day allow us to avoid his wrath. It all comes back to Jesus. What Jesus is describing as a way for us to be as to live in this happy, this state of identity in Christ, is what he was going to be doing on the cross to fulfill for us. And then we get into verses 10 and 11, and it says this, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then 11 said, Blessed are you while others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. He said, Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets before you. So he's saying, happy are those who suffer opposition while aiming to live holy and obedient lives because one day you'll be with God where there is no longer any suffering. I mean, these two verses are crazy to me. 
I mean, I have such a hard time looking at this thinking, man, I'm blessed when somebody else is going to revile and persecute me and utter all kinds of evil against me falsely because I'm with Jesus. And you know what's strange? It's becoming increasingly difficult and costly to be vocal about your faith in America. It just is, man. I mean, I, I don't want to be ridiculed. I don't want to be ridiculed. I don't want to be written off because I'm holding to worldviews that people think are old and antiquated and out of date and belong on sitcoms from the 1950s. I don't want that. Whether it's physical or verbal, my tendency is to shy away from speaking up because I want to be liked. I want to find favor with people. Dave Durnlin, one of our elders, he gave me a book last week, some of you may have heard of, called Fox's Book of Martyrs, that documents the true stories of people in the church who have been persecuted for righteousness' sake. I mean, these are crazy stories through the ages. They're like those stories you hear about where, where Christians were thrown to the lions because they would not, uh, they would not deny their faith. They didn't devalue life either. They just placed more value on the life to come. It doesn't mean they wanted to die. I mean, they weren't kamikaze pilots, these guys. It's more like uh, in Acts 5 when Peter rejoiced after they were beaten because they were worthy to be beaten for the name of Jesus. So how do we do that? How do we rejoice when it's all coming against us? And is it coming against us? How do we rejoice? Well, because we've come to hope in a heavenly reward rather than seeking an earthly award. Christ gives rewards, the world gives awards. Paul called this nah, just some light momentary affliction because it was just incomparable to what his future held. And here's the thing. Sometimes Christians are reviled, persecuted, and slandered against for all the right reasons. Aren't we? We lack discernment. We make unloving comments. We slander those that God calls us to pray for. We speak out of ignorance. I mean, if you don't know what I'm talking about, just keep your eyes on the news between now and the elections next year and see some of the things that are said by people that are associating with us that you wish they would just shut up about because it doesn't represent you. We want to run from opposition. Jesus said those who love me will be able to rejoice when their opponents claim victory over them because they know that the real victory has already been won. That's the difference. So what do we make of these eight Beatitudes, these eight blessings? I read an article recently that says churches don't preach on the Beatitudes much these days. It's not a popular message. And we should acknowledge our own struggle with this. I mean, there's not a lot in there where I just want to run out of here waving a flag going, yeah, man, let's get to it. Poor in spirit, meekness, mourning. Like, I'm in. There's just not a lot there that, that really draws us into that in our natural state. Man, we struggle with it. We're afraid to tell people how counterintuitive following Jesus is. But let's flip the list as we close. What would the 
What would the list look like if we flipped it? Would this be a more preferable list for us if we could flip it? For instance, when he says poor in spirit, blessed are the poor in spirit, what if we flipped it to the opposite and said, if you think you're all that, you'll be able to get everything you want in life. Maybe some of you guys will teach your kids that. What about those that mourn will be comforted? What if you flipped it and said, if you don't care about anyone but yourself, you'll feel a whole lot better? What about, the, what about blessed are the meek? And you flip that and you said, you know what? If you just have pride, if you believe in yourself, you're going to conquer the world. Maybe. What about righteousness, pursuing righteousness, hunger and thirsting after it? What if we flip that and said, you know what? If you just desire food, money, and power, you'll find all the satisfaction you need. What if you flipped the part about mercy and said, if you show no mercy, you won't need any because you'll be strong enough to live without it? What about the pure in heart who will see God? What if we flipped it to say, you know what? If you just go after whatever your heart desires you'll see it all come to you in the end. What about being a peacemaker? What if we flipped it and said, you know, if you just steamroll over whoever is in your way, you'll earn your name in society. You'll become great. What about the persecuted? What if we flipped that and said, you know, forget that. Instead, if you destroy anyone who tries to come against you, that's what's going to give you your safety and your security in life. Do you see what the other side of these things are? And do you see how we've been sold that by the world? I mean, I'm being a little cutting about it, but don't tell me that you haven't been given a version of these things by the culture and society that you've grown up in. And a lot of this doesn't even sound so bad if you phrase it correctly. But in the end, it leads to death. And that's what Jesus is trying to say. He's challenging our values. He redefines our definition. He startles us out of our short-sightedness. He wants to rub us the wrong way. He wants to make us uncomfortable. He wants to cause us to rethink who we think truly blessed and truly happy people are. I mean, all of you have probably had conversations with loved ones where they say something like this. Baby, I just want you to be happy. But what does that word mean? What do they mean when they say that? Typically, what they mean is that they hope you get what you want. Or that you find your dream job. Or that you meet the person you're convinced will make you most happy. Maybe they're, maybe they're hoping you achieve a major goal like paying off your house. Or putting enough money in your 401k so that you never have to work again. Maybe that's the definition that they're trying to push on you. And that's their hope for your life. But what if you're wrong? What if you're wrong? What if your dream job gets bought out by another company and you lose it? What if the person you married, the dream gal, the dream guy, is unfaithful or they leave? What if 2008 happens again and your 401k gets desecrated? What if your kids go off the rails after all those years of VeggieTale VHS tapes and they rebel and they go off the deep end? What then? What if the Buckeyes go 0 and 12 this year? What then? What then? Really not kidding about that last one. Where do you find your happiness 
then? Will you just replace it with a new version of the same thing? What if Jesus said that what you passionately pursued before he changed you isn't supposed to be your life's passion anymore? What if when you followed Christ, he told you that your dreams were going to be reimagined and redesigned? That the drive you once had for attaining things and accomplishing goals was going to be replaced with a desire for something the world would think you'd lost your mind to go after. And against all logic, that these things were actually going to be what give you the most happiness, joy, and satisfaction, despite feeling just the opposite. Remember what we saw last week. Nobody expected the Messiah to come down the road he came down. We like rags-to-riches stories. I do. I love the underdogs. I love underdog stories, where the farm boy throwing balls behind the barn becomes the major league baseball player, or the ordinary, average, middle-class girl grows up, she marries the Prince of Wales. We dig that. I like that. But Jesus was a rags-to-rags story. Humble beginnings led to a humble end. The story of Jesus is so different than how we want our stories to end up, and yet it led to life. The story of Jesus is that weakness is strength, that defeat is victory, that the lowly are lifted up, that the castouts are called, and the afflicted are affirmed in the end. So before Jesus tells us to be salt and light, which we're going to hear about next week, we're given the future blessings that come from being what salt and light really is. Let me close with this. I've seen a pattern at this church, at Substance, where people find a home here, and then God starts dismantling all the safe and secure fortresses of your life. I've seen that as a pattern in many of you and me. It's easy to be comfortable in Ashland, even Worcester, believe it or not. Ashland is the fourth cheapest city in America to live in. I'll take it. It's relatively safe. Not a lot of great restaurants, but a real nice park, some good trails, slow, easy, manageable pace, and no traffic if they ever finish widening Main Street. But it's interesting how God starts pulling those items from the aisles of our life and says, we're not going to carry that product anymore. And when we feel like we can't live without it, he sends you to a church to hear a guy preach a message telling you that your hope has been in something less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. The message of Jesus is that life comes from death to those things that don't end in life. You can only be truly happy today if you have hope for tomorrow. Jesus gives us a vision and an expectation of that. 
So where is joy, happiness, hope, and meaningfulness? Where is it found? Well, it resides in the kingdom of God, which is a place filled with those whose greatest needs will be filled by Jesus as they see their great need for him. It is the best news the world will ever have. Amen? Lord, we pray for that news that you've given us in Christ. This news that comes to us in such odd ways when we think about mourning and being meek and hungering and thirsting after righteousness. It just strips away our preconceived notions and the bill of goods that we've been fed about what it is that will make us most completely satisfied and we will find our greatest joy and our most fulfilling happiness. Lord, all of us in our sin still believe that in varying degrees. So Lord, we pray to you, Holy Spirit, that you would do a work in us, that you would pull us off the sidelines of those things that keep ripping and tearing at us and disappointing us and lying to us, and we would be pulled into the center where Jesus has paid it all. Lord, I pray that we would stand on the solidness of Christ, that you would give us greater hearts, greater affection, give us greater aims to live within the parameters of these blessings that you have given us as your sons and daughters. Lord, I pray that you would just open our hearts, change our minds, Give us humility as we look at these things. Thank you for humbling yourself, Jesus. That you came down here, you humbled yourself, you made yourself poor in spirit, you displayed meekness so that someday we would see you. Lord, let this truth change us today. We thank you for the joy that we can have knowing that it's been done. Thank you for paying it all. All God's people said, amen. Hey, let's stand.